Hey, it's Father Roderick, and welcome to another episode of Father Roderick to the Max. Welcome to this show, recorded just for you, because you are one of my monthly supporters, and I am so happy that you are part of that community that is expanding. The last couple of weeks, we've seen an influx of new patrons, uh, new supporters, and of course, that creates new possibilities for the future. So I'm super, super happy with the growth of this community. Lots of stuff to talk about in this show. We're going to talk about my comfort food top five. I will tell you about a, a person that was born 100 years ago and played a major role in my life. I'll give you a review of the 2014 comic book series about Miss Marvel and in the games section, I will talk about an amazing spin-off of a very popular video game, actually two popular video games in the Assassin's Creed series. And then I have a new segment for you, which is dedicated to the wondrous, mysterious world sometimes of Catholic liturgy. And this week, I'm going to talk about kneelers and kneeling during Catholic services. And then in the VR segment, I will talk uh, about the rumored Apple Glass AR headset that uh, has hit the news just surprisingly uh, about a week ago. I will give you my thoughts. But first of all, it is time to dive into the kitchen and talk about food. These corona times are doing weird things to our, our, our psyche, at least to my psyche. It seems as if I'm much more focused on cooking, on food, on snacking, on breakfast, on a nice lunch. I, there is so much more variety in my cooking than there was before the start of this corona crisis. I think it is because we're stuck at home. And our world has become very small. At least my world has become pretty small. I do go out occasionally for a, a run or a bike ride or a walk. But most of the day, I'm just sitting here down below in the, um, yeah, on, the, on the main floor of the rectory uh, in what used to be my living room. And now it's kind of my office. It still looks like my living room, but I'm surrounded by technology. There are literally three, four Actually, four cameras on tripods here behind me. I'm not using them. They come from the church where I've been using them for the past 10 weeks to stream the masses. Finally, they've been replaced by uh, uh, two cameras that were purchased by the parish. It took them forever to uh, free up the funds. Uh, shows kind of the priority of these things. Or maybe it's like, oh, Father Roderick will uh, we'll figure it out. Um. So I brought all that equipment here, and of course I can't bring it back to the office uh, because that office is, has not been in use for two, three months now. Um, we're going to um, move away from the place where we've had our offices for two years. Uh, the reason being that the church and the building next to it, where we had our offices, um, are going to be rented out to uh, another community or another church maybe we don't know exactly but um, the parish has decided to move the the eucharistic celebrations to a, a one of the other churches and soon there's going to be a decision on which church that will be that means that uh there is n basically no future for us in that building uh they want to rent it out to other people uh, maybe 
They'll even sell it. We don't know, but we're not going to invest in a building that may not be there anymore in a couple of years from now. Uh, so that's going to save us some money, but it also creates a lot of headaches because, of course, the the two floors um, contained all our equipment. Uh, I had a podcast studio. We had a television studio um, that is going to be removed um, at the beginning of June. Upstairs, we had a, a number of uh, offices for, for Inge, for Martin. Um, last year, we had uh, also Marjolaine, who was uh, our presenter that year. Um, and we were planning on building a much bigger set, a green screen set, in one of those rooms. Um, but all those plans, of course, have been cancelled. And so we're kind of uh, rethinking our strategy. We've been working from home uh, for the past two months. And actually, that's, that's, that's going well. And as long as this situation continues, uh, our government still continues to, to encourage us to, to work from home. So that means that we're not going to rent a new office space, um, at least not in the foreseeable future. That, oh, But that means that all that stuff will probably have to be stored here for the time being. So I'm thinking of uh, uh, transforming the this lower floor into a makeshift office so that at least we can build a few sets and we can have a place where uh, when when people start to work at the office again, they can sit here. And so we can, we can kind of... Uh, Restrategize what we're going to do, how we're going to work in the couple of, in the next couple of months without incurring extra costs. Um, but because I'm I'm always sitting in this same room day after day. Unfortunately, is it? It's a big room. Um, the 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 moments that I'm not working and not sitting here is when I'm in the kitchen. And so I I kind of really want to let go of all my creativity or not not let go but hold on to all my creativity and and cook some, cook up a storm. Um but there are also m- more days than than before the corona crisis that I'm just completely wiped out. This has been one of those weeks where I have been working uh, long hours um every single day of the week. Uh, th- there is no break for me because on Saturday evening we are streaming um, Vespers, uh, so evening prayer uh, dedicated to the Virgin Mary. We had a bishop visiting us uh, last Saturday. On Sunday I'm streaming Mass in the morning, doing all the camera work, um, and then in the evening I've got Mass for Geeks. Um, and then from Monday till Friday I'm just busy m- running things. And making things happen. And uh, it's a very complex situation because we're doing this for two parishes and those two parishes have different, make different choices when it comes to the, the corona situation. There is one pastoral team, but I'm actually not part of that pastoral team. And yet I have a key role in this, at least in, in this corona uh, situation. Um, I have also a lot of ideas, as you can imagine. So uh, I'm always talking, meeting with people, trying to massage people into making changes. Um, it, 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 I, I notice that it, it, uh, it takes a lot of uh, emotional energy as well. Uh, it's not always easy. Um, sometimes it's just downright really tough to keep every, everyone on the same level, uh, to, uh, to keep everybody more or less happy or at least cooperative. Um, and it's not that everything always goes smoothly. Most of it does, but there are also 
things that go wrong, things that don't work the way we thought it would be. There are definitely um, issues that we can't solve or we weren't able to solve. And now, just recently, we've been confronted with uh, very strict measures uh, that we have to take in order to open up our church. So on the one hand, they expect us to open our churches for the Eucharist uh, at the beginning of June, so right after Pentecost. On the other hand, there is still so much that we need to put in place to be able to give safety to the people that would want to visit church. Um, That is just, uh, it's a ton of work. It's a ton of work, and I'm worrying about it. And I, well, worry, I'm not really worried about it, but it's just constantly on my mind, day and night. And so uh, there are m- moments during the week that I just don't have the energy to cook, and I just want to eat something easy. Uh, it's sometimes even in the morning, normally I always kind of prepare breakfast, and I try to have a healthy breakfast, but sometimes I just want to have cereal. And that brings me to the first entry in my top five of uh, comfort food, one of my favorite types of comfort food, I rarely ever eat that, except for this this time of corona. I kind of reverted back to something that I always loved eating when I was a child and 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 barely ever got because my mom was very conscious about you know health and uh, healthy eating. But sometimes when we would stay with uh, family or friends, we would get that in the morning, and I just adored it. And I remember the the commercials on TV where I was just, it was just mouth-watering, and it's so simple. I'm just talking about cereal. I'm just talking about cornflakes, just regular golden cornflakes in a bowl with ice-cold milk and then some sugar sprinkled on top of it. It has to be real sugar, not the... Sugar substitute, but so the, the, you have the crunch of the uh, of the cereal. You have the added crunch of the sugar, and then the sugar would slowly dissolve in the milk. So the milk would get sweeter the more you would get to the bottom, and sometimes the sugar would would form little little heaps in in the crevices of the of the flakes of the corn. Uh, well, of the of the cereal, the cor- the corn flakes. And so you'd sometimes take a bite and then you would have that explosion of sweetness in your mouth. And oh, it was so good. And it's especially in the morning. Often I wake up when I'm thirsty and I'm kind of dried out. And uh, the, the weather is starting to warm up. So sometimes my room is a little bit too warm. So I, I wake up and I'm super thirsty. And I don't want to eat bread. I just, ah, it's too tough. It's too much. So I just, this morning I filled a bowl with with uh, whole milk, I you know, nice fatty milk. I don't want to go for all the, the the uh, low calorie because that doesn't have taste. And I add the cereal, add a spoonful of sugar, uh, makes the medicine go down. And I know every bite I take, I know this is comfort food. This is not healthy. This is absolutely not as doesn't have any nutritional value except for some fast sugars that I will be burning. And I will be hungry probably around 11. <laughs> so this is a bad idea. But oh, it's so good. It's I'm just sitting there in the sunroom and uh, I'm reading through the news, listening to podcasts. And in the meantime, I'm just like every bite is crunchy and nice and reminds me of simpler times. That's also, it's probably just the 
evocative nature of that of of that bowl of cereal. It makes me remember the time that I was just a kid, and that I didn't need to worry about a parish, that I didn't need to worry about my TV work and all sorts of obligations and keeping keeping everybody happy in the parish. It was a time that my my parents knew everything. If there was a problem, they would solve it. I just had to go to school and and draw comics and talk about Star Wars with my brother. And that was what my life was about. I so long back to those days. <laughs> my second comfort food is uh, something that you can eat at any time of the day, or at least I can eat it at any time of the day. And in the Netherlands, we actually do eat that at various times of the day. It's not just breakfast. I'm talking about crepes. Not pancakes. We call them pancakes or pannenkoeken. Literally the same word as pancakes. It's a it's a cookie in a pan, um, but it's very different from the kind of pancakes that uh, my North American audience is uh, used to. Those are kind of spongy. They put some uh, 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 this what is it? They um, it's much more bubbly and airy. Um, our crepes are made out of flour. You can also add a bit of whole grain flour if you want to go make it a little bit, you know, easier to digest. Uh, milk, eggs, that's it. So, um, and then you put a little bit of butter in a pan. Make sure the pan is nice, evenly heated. You pour in a, a big spoon, like a soup spoon, full of that. Uh, uh, of that substance, and then uh, it turns into a very flat kind of, well, a crepe. You know what a crepe is. And you can eat that either with sweet or hearty um, additions. So one of my favorite types of crepes is crepes with bacon and uh, old Gouda cheese. So nice, salty cheese. You just... Uh, uh, take off a few slices. You 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 cut them into small pieces. Distribute them evenly over the over the pancake or the the crepe. You add um, a few pieces of bacon. You turn that thing around so the bacon starts to sizzle, and the cheese starts to melt. And then uh, when the whole thing is golden brown at, on both sides, you put it on a plate. And then the ultimate comfort food combination, which is really weird, but also extremely yummy, is to add syrup. So kind of like maple leaf syrup, but then just made out of sugar beets, I think. Um, So it's this slightly caramelized, uh, syrupy substance, extremely sweet. But the combination of the sweet syrup and then the salty taste of the Bacon and the cheese combined with that wrapper of uh, of the of the crepe, it is a fantastic combination. You only eat one, and that will fill you up for the rest of the morning. <laughs> so that is absolutely something that I can eat any time of the day. We we also eat it for lunch. We, we even sometimes, however, we would probably just go to a restaurant. We eat it in the evening. So there are uh, uh, specialty. Um, crepe restaurants here in the Netherlands. Almost every town has one. Uh, I, I remember taking uh, Cliff Ravenscraft to one of those. Uh, we, we went for a big biking tour, and then we, we I think we had 
dinner probably at one of those. I don't, I th- it was called the uh, the gnome hut. So <laughs> little garden gnomes all over the place. And you would basically have a crepe as big as a pizza. Um, and, and rather thick. And uh, when you when you get it for, for, for dinner, you can add much more. They will sometimes just add meat or or kind of pizza-like ingredients or the, the, just the weirdest thing like, like garlic sauce and stuff like that. <laughs> I'm not a fan of all of those combinations, um, but it does fill you up because it's very doughy. It's very, you know, it's just... just a, it fills the stomach immediately. Great comfort food. Always makes me pass out afterwards. Then on number three in my comfort food top five, this may surprise you. I barely ever eat it, but it has myth- mythical uh, status in, 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 in my memory. In, and that is KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken. I have always loved chicken. Uh, as a child, it was always uh, when we when it was our birthday, we could order whatever we wanted to eat. Of course, if it wasn't too exotic, um, and I would always uh, always ask for chicken because I just loved chicken, especially with the skin still on it and uh, nicely marinated or something like that. But chicken was awesome. And then um, I wonder when I discovered KFC for the first time, there were, was no Kentucky Fried Chicken in the Netherlands when I grew up. That was something that we, well, I don't think we even knew that it existed. It's like Taco Bell. It's still not here, as far as I know, in the Netherlands. Uh, whereas it's such a staple fast food restaurant chain in, in North America. Um, I wonder if the first time that I ate KFC wasn't with my grandmother in San Francisco. That's probably when I first had it. Um, and I just... No, 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 wait a minute. No, that's not it. That's not it. I know that there there was actually one place in the Netherlands with a KFC. Just one city. And that was Amsterdam. And there was only one restaurant in Amsterdam. I mean, it's one of the global cities. It's huge. And there was only one KFC. And uh, in, in, when I was a student, that's how it happened. When I was a student, sometimes I would take the train to Amsterdam, which from Utrecht, where I studied, was about... 40 minutes, I think. And I would just, I wouldn't do that very often because uh, back then as a student, I didn't make any money. So train ticket was still expensive. Um, but I would go there sometimes on a, on a Saturday, for instance, or even on a Sunday after mass, because it was the only city in the Netherlands where the shops were open on Sunday. And, and they had stores like, uh, I remember this one, record slash video store where they had dvds which back then at the time was still pretty rare and they had they imported stuff from from the united states mostly and so you could get uh cds there of artists that just never played on dutch radio but that i knew from i don't know even how i knew it probably from movies and stuff so i I bought like special collector's item uh, or collection status CD sets of the Star Wars trilogy, and um, uh, I, I would buy Star Trek uh, VHS uh, tapes, just an entire series of Voyager. I think I, I once bought it, a uh, season of Voyager, which wasn't on TV back then. Um, and 
just I spent an inordinate amount of money on stuff that, that we just couldn't get anywhere else in the Netherlands. There was also uh, an American bookstore, still is, uh, and that was the only bookstore that I knew in the Netherlands that only had American books. And there was some something magical about American covers and uh, just the whole printing industry in the, in, in the U.S. is so different from European books. Um, usually very beautiful covers, um, interesting topics. They, they, they would have this entire floor filled with geek stuff. So they would have rows and rows and rows of books about Star Trek and Star Wars and behind-the-scenes uh, material. They would have uh, the Star Wars novels. Again, there was no Amazon at the time. No Dutch bookstore would carry Star Wars books, especially not in English. And so I think I bought almost every single novelization or novel, Star Wars novel of the Expanded Universe in that American bookstore. I would just save up some money. And as soon as I was able to buy a few more books, I would take the train to Amsterdam. And then my lunch stop would always be at KFC. You had to walk through the Culverstraat, which is the the biggest, uh, fanciest uh, shopping street of Amsterdam. And at the end, right before you enter the big square in the center of the city, um, you, would, uh, you would have on your right, you would have the KFC. And I remember just walking by and smelling this fried chicken and then it was very expensive. That's a, another thing that I remembered. It was like twice as expensive as a menu at a McDonald's. But McDonald's was already all over the place. That was boring. I never really cared much for for McDonald's. Still don't. I still, even now, prefer uh, the, the burgers and the fries of uh, Burger King, even though that's also pretty bland. And more recently, of course, with the advent of, of Five Guys in Utrecht, that is, you know, to me that's heaven. I shouldn't go there too often, but oh my goodness, that is that is definitely my favorite fast food chain from across the ocean that uh, that is now settled in the Netherlands. But again, I think there's just a few in the Netherlands, just three or four. Um, so back then, KFC that was exotic, and so I think it was ten guilders at the time. It was before the euro. Um, which back then was just ex- insanely expensive, but it was so good you would get these th- these three pieces of chicken. the The fries were terrible and still are. They're way too small. They have no taste whatsoever. Um, even I, I even remember that uh, that for a while they would have this chemical taste, almost as if they cleaned out the uh, the fryers. Uh, during the night and then didn't clean them well so that a little bit of that detergent was still in the fat. I, the first time that I ate there, I w- went to the counter and complained about it and they said, well, this is just how they taste here. Um, so the fries are terrible. You would get um, uh, this coleslaw salad thingy, super fat with just mayonnaise and and uh, almost like a, like a, a pretend... Uh, salad. So, you know, this is healthy. Look, we've got coleslaw. And it's like, well, probably every bite of coleslaw is another thousand calories. And it wasn't even very tasty. And and they would serve it with bread, with uh, kind of this fluffy bread that also didn't have much taste. It was a little bit sweeter than the bread that you would get in a restaurant here. So probably also tailored to the American taste where bread is always sweet for some reason. Even bread that they eat for breakfast is loaded with sugar. Ugh. 
Oh, is there anything that is there? Is there's one thing that I try to avoid when I'm in the United States. It's it's bread in the morning. It it, it is just horrible. Anyway, but the chicken, the chicken was the the king, or I should say, the queen of the of the meal. It was so good that crispy crust, and then that that succulent uh, uh, chicken underneath, and. Back then, I think they would make it to order, so you wouldn't have these old pieces that had been lying there under the heater for two hours. Uh, I've had very nasty KFC experiences later on, even in the United States, but definitely in Italy, um, where you would get... It's very uneven, quality-wise. Sometimes you'd get some pieces of chicken, and you're like, how long has that chicken been dead? Way too long. Anyway, but that is... Still, I, I again. I think it's probably the evocative nature of KFC. I, 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 I cherish those days in Amsterdam. That was for me almost like traveling to the U.S., which I had never done back then. And but it was like a little bit of a Amsterdam felt like a real city. That was where you could feel the world. This was all be, before the internet or just the the dawn of the internet. So nowadays. We're all surrounded by American culture and it's just this, this global feeling. You just switch on your computer or your iPad and boom, you're connected with the world. Back then, you had to go to a city like Amsterdam to kind of have that feeling. And I've always felt a little bit out of place here in the Netherlands. I always felt uh, that I was much more of a citizen of planet Earth than a citizen of the Netherlands. And sometimes that creeps up on me, especially during these corona times. My world is too small. I live in this village, in this town. I spent my time debating with, you know, pastoral teams and uh, board meetings in a parish. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, it's all, it's all so irrelevant. You know, you travel for for ten minutes and nobody even knows what happens here or cares for it. So why should I care that much? Going to Amsterdam, eating Kentucky Fried Chicken made me feel like the world is bigger then the seminary and then the studies that I'm uh, <laughs> not really enjoying too much. So, yeah, Kentucky Fried Chicken tastes like freedom to me. That's why it's comfort food. Number two, now that I've talked so much about KFC, I'm thinking maybe I should have put it on, on the second place because what follows next is a typical Dutch snack. It's just a snack. It's nothing special. But it is good. Oh, I'm talking about Bitter balls. Yeah, that's what they're called. Bitter balls. I uh, actually uh, found an entry in English on Wikipedia about bitter ballen. We call them bitter ballen. Ballen is the uh, uh, plural of balls. And it, uh, it explains it very well, better than I could do it by myself. So here it is. Bitter ballen, plural of bitter ball, are a Dutch meat-based snack made by making a very thick stew thickened with roux and beef stock and generously loaded with meat, refrigerating the stew until it firms, and then rolling the thick mixture into balls, which then get breaded and fried. Seasonings in the base stew uh, usually include onions, salt and pepper, parsley and nutmeg. Most recipes, recipes include nutmeg, and there are also variations using curry powder, or that add in finely chopped vegetables such as carrot. Well, <laughs> all this, I've never ever had a bitter ball. <laughs> 
with those ingredients. I think they're talking about the fancy stuff they found online somewhere. But uh, you definitely, we don't eat bitter balls like that. It's way too fancy. It's just a, it's just a roux with some, with some, you know, beef or whatever. But but definitely not all those fancy ingredients. The ingredients are combined and cooked, refrigerated for the mixture to firm up. This is a this is a, a repeat of what uh, came before. So battered in breadcrumb and egg, egg mis- mixture and deep fried. They are typically served with ramkin. I don't know what that is. Or a small bowl of mustard for dipping. What is ramkin? This Wikipedia entry has not been written by a, by us, by the Dutch. A cocotine is a small glazed ceramic. A bowl... Okay, I've never seen that before. (laughs) That Wikipedia page is rubbish. Anyway, uh, but mustard, absolutely. You always eat it with mustard. The combination of the meaty roux with the, you know, like kind of strong, spicy uh, taste. We have um, the mustard in the Netherlands is not as strong as the French mustard, but we have thousands um different types of mustard uh you've got the 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 coarse one you've got the very mild one uh you've got mustard with added flavors etc we've got mustard mayonnaise but you need to serve it with dipping sauce and mustard for me is is actually the best combination it enhances the taste of the bitter balls they're eaten not just in the netherlands but also in suriname and the netherlands antilles and in Belgium and to some degree in Indonesia. I didn't know about that. I've never I've never seen them in Belgium. They're very similar to another uh, snack that we eat here called croquette. Croquettes. Cro- croquettes, I would say. Um, same ingredients, mostly. Croquette, croquettes usually have a, a bit of a um, less firm roux on the inside. Um, but the croquettes have a, an oblong sausage shape. Similar diameter, um, but the the bitter ball is is so cool because it's you can eat it in one bite, and it is amazing. You always burn your tongue <laughs> because the inside is super hot, <laughs> and it is something that is a perfect five o'clock snack. This is when we sit down on a terrace in the summertime, of course, keeping our social distance now from now on. That is what everybody orders. You sit, you have a beer, and you have bitter balls. And you order at least 12 per person, if it's up to me. <laughs> but it is really, 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 really good. And I'm looking at those pictures and I'm getting so hungry now. Let's quickly move over to the number one comfort food for me. And this is actually not one specific meal, but it is a category of, of food. And if I've had a very, very tough day or if I've worked really hard and... I th- I'm I'm telling myself erroneously, of course, that I deserve comfort food, which is something I should probably never tell myself, but I do anyhow. It's Chinese takeaway, and so it's the Chinese food I talked about it two episodes ago. Um, that is uh, very much influenced by the Indonesian kitchen. Um, you don't find this food anywhere else in the world. If you go to a Chinese takeaway, if you get Chinese takeaway in, in Spain or in France or in Italy or in the United States, it is completely different. 
<laughs> so sometimes tourists are very surprised when they travel abroad and they order Chinese food and they have we have the this certain names for food and they order that and then the the Chinese restaurant owner is like uh say again <laughs> what <laughs> That is not Chinese food, but dude, that that is Chinese. That is that is what we eat in the Netherlands. We go to the Chinese restaurant, and I order uh, a nice uh, lumpia with uh, with barmy and uh, and we also and maybe some satay. You have satay? <laughs> it was like that is not Chinese food. It is not what Chi- the Chinese don't eat that themselves. It's just this particular is is a f- similar to. The Indian cuisine in, uh, or the takeaway Indian kitchen in the UK, uh, which is, I think, just as prevalent over there as Chinese food is here in the Netherlands, but it has almost nothing to do with the Indian kitchen. This is not what you would get in India, but it is the UK version of it, and it's yummy. I love it. I've, I, I was very surprised when I, when we traveled there on vacation and. And it, and we were looking for Chinese takeaway food, and we could only find Indian takeaway food. But it was so good. But again, it's you only can eat it in the UK. So for me, Chinese takeaway that is the comfort food par excellence, and that is also linked to my childhood. This is what you know. Very rarely, my parents would order. My dad was a huge fan of of Chinese takeaway, and uh, and it was always different. There were some staple ingredients like uh, rice or or um, uh, pasta, like Chinese pasta, and um, and some well, usually chicken, roasted pork belly, that sort of stuff. But then my dad would get adventurous, and so he would uh, look at the menu, and he would order all these things that probably they never cooked. <laughs> so it always took forever. We went there, and and uh, uh, we 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 picked up the food. It was it's not ready yet. <laughs> you ordered number sixty seven, and it's been like five years since our cook made that. He has to look it up <laughs> how to prepare it. And so there was always something above a, a bit of a, you know, something exotic. This was something that we couldn't cook and still is very hard to cook exactly. I've been studying these recipes. And if you remember, I think in one of the last episodes, I give you the recipe for, for fried rice. Um, prepared in the same way as these restaurants. So I tried to make that. I got very close, but it wasn't identical. It was... It's just like those recipes for Kentucky Fried Chicken. You, you, there are secret ingredients. So there's a secret uh, mixture of uh, of herbs that they use um, that gives it its recognizable flavor. So a lot of 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 people have tried to analyze what's in these herbs, and so you will find a lot of recipes online that will tell you how to make you know perfect KFC type chicken, and then you try it, and yeah, it it, it is. A bit like KFC, but it is not KFC, and you don't know why. Well, that's kind of my story with Chinese takeaway. I'm sure that it is possible to master it, but you never know what happens in that kitchen, what they do with it. <laughs> and it, and so it is something that I, um, that I love. That I'm very familiar. The, the thing is, in the 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 Dutch Chinese restaurants all make the same, follow the same recipes. There is this this whole industry of Chinese cooking and uh they all use the same ingredients they buy it in bulk in the same you know 
companies. And it's usually stuff that you can't buy in the supermarket. They, they buy it in, uh, you know, or they import it straight from, from, from China, maybe. Um, but th- there's something cool about food that, that is so familiar, yet you can't make it. It is, my, it is my perfect comfort food, Chinese takeaway. I always eat too much. I always get very thirsty because I put in a lot of uh, um, uh, MSG. Um, so it goes very well with a beer. And it was also my favorite comfort, my escape food when I was studying in Rome. This, some people considered it, this to be the craziest thing that I've done in Rome. But there were times where I was just fed up with Italian food. That sounds weird because it, so you will see there's no pizza in my, uh, in my top five. And that's because I, I do like Italian cuisine, but I don't love it. I've, I've never, never l- loved Italian food. It, maybe because it's just too familiar. It's too common in a certain way. You know, pizza, it's good, but I don't crave it. I don't miss it if I don't eat it. I eat a lot of spaghetti and macaroni and, you know, kind of Italian-style kitchen. But it's something that we're so familiar with that it doesn't really stand out. And uh, when I was studying Rome, what you get in restaurants is not just pizza. It's, they have this whole you know, three-part meal where they start with uh, sometimes a salad or they will give you a, a pasta or a risotto. And then um, even before that, you sometimes get like fried legumes. And so everything is separate. And then after... The pasta, which many of us would consider to be the main course, it's not. It's considered to be, you know, that's usually why you get very small quantities in Italy. They'll move over to just a piece of meat. And it's the most boring piece of meat. They, they're they not very good with meat, in my opinion. Um, maybe if you're lucky with some fries or something, or maybe a tiny bit of salad, but it's... Uh, Nothing too special. Nothing, nothing really. And then dessert. Dessert is usually cake or ice cream. I always go for ice cream because I don't care for cake. And, uh, yeah, and then coffee. And then alcohol. (laughs) That's about it. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, nothing, there's nothing wrong with it. And there are definitely some types of pasta that I can eat in huge quantities, like there's this pasta califa in in Rome, in one of the, the there's only one restaurant where where uh, they have it. Rumor has it that it actually the recipe for pasta califa is in uh, the cookbook of the Swiss Guard. I have to check on that because if that's true, I'm going to buy it, the book that is, because I've never figured out how they made it, but it is my favorite pasta. And then there is this other restaurant in uh, Trastevere where they uh, serve a uh, pasta of the house, pasta Mario, I don't know, whatever. And it's really, it's very creamy. It's made with uh, thick cream and and pieces of uh, bacon. And it's so good. (laughs) I should not record this. I'm so hungry. I just ate dinner and I'm still hungry. But there you go. That is my comfort food top five i'd love to hear what your comfort food top five looks like let me know on patreon 
um, you can just add it as a comment to this uh, to this podcast. But most of you will probably listen to this on their phone or in their podcatcher. So you can also let me know online on Twitter or Facebook or even share a picture uh, on, on, on Instagram of your, you know, what's your number one comfort food? I'd love to know. And with that, it is time to dive into history. I think it's about a week ago that it was a hundred years ago that Karol Wojtyła was born in Poland. Karol Wojtyła. You know him as Pope John Paul II, or nowadays, Saint Pope John Paul II. Um, a century ago. And it feels like yesterday that I celebrated Easter on, on St. Peter's Square, and he was like just a few people away from me, standing at the altar, already very sick back then. His uh, doctor was sitting right in front of me, and I had to support him during Mass several times when the, 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 the live television uh, stream very uh, modestly turned away so they would film the crowd, for instance, and during that time he would get m medication. Um, but I've also known him when he was still in his prime years, when he had been a pope for five years or something like that, uh, because when I was still in seminary, we visited Rome as a pilgrimage. I've been there twice, I think, with the uh, Belgium seminary where I studied, where I did my philosophy, and then um, went back also with the Dutch seminary where I did my theology. And the first visit, I remember, I will never forget that. It was so impressive. For me, uh, John Paul II was kind of at the cradle of my vocation. Um, uh, I was 17 years old, and uh, he had decided to visit the Netherlands and Belgium. And uh, back then, the Catholic Church was really in going through some very turbulent times. There was a lot of polarization. You had the liberal side or the progressive Catholics that wanted to change everything, you know, ordain women and, 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 and do, you know, do away with, uh, with the, the, the traditional forms of liturgy, uh, very um, politically uh, infused as well. And then you had the opposite camp, there were really only two camps, and that was, you know, the hardcore traditional Catholics uh, that uh, would hate any type of innovation. Or, uh, and and of course, as usual, the the right way was probably in, you know, to stay in the middle, which I tried as a as a kid, but it's very very hard. So, I I knew back then, and it's probably also the influence of my parents that I was not really a liberal Catholic. I I just couldn't I, I felt like this is not gonna last this is superficial change it's not by changing the forms that you're gonna renew the church that has to come from the inside but anyway that's all kind of that's in hindsight that i say that but i somehow intuitively felt that that was not it and i was as a child already very familiar with the beauty of of just traditional liturgy i was a an altar boy i I loved serving mass, like high mass on Sunday with uh, 
frankincense and Latin chant and whatnot, and and it was just beautiful. And and I, I couldn't understand that people wanted to get rid of that, because to me that was much easier. To well, it, it it maybe I did not experience it like that, but I just felt that this is this is this is good, you know. There's there's an intrinsic value to this type of liturgy and the alternative that we saw in those more liberal circles was uh, like extremely sober liturgy where people would just stand there in their jeans and everybody was equal no priests no vestments Um, they wouldn't always read from the bible or liturgical texts they would just read to each other poems they would compose their own eucharistic prayers and that was all the rage and it was widespread at the time. It's really hard to imagine because the church in the Netherlands has changed so much. All of that is is gone. And nobody, well, few people even remember it. Sometimes in one of the newer parish, parish churches where I uh, go now that, that, that uh, they've added a second parish to our team, sometimes I see remnants of that generation. And it's almost as if you step into a museum like they don't know that the church, most of the church has moved on from those days, and for them it's still current day liturgy and and what they appreciate. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know that this existed. I didn't like it back then. I don't. I like it even less now. It's so, it's so, you know, gone. This is this is no longer working. Anyway, um, when when John Paul took that decision to visit the Netherlands, um, it started a war between those two camps. Uh, and the media at the at, in those days was extremely anti-Catholic, anti-Pope, because it stood for anything, everything that was old-fashioned and difficult, mostly difficult. You know, the, the church is demanding when it comes to uh, lifestyle. And, well... Not everybody appreciates that. And it's understandable because in order to adhere to what the church asks, you have to first know the heart of all that. You have to understand why. It's, it's a, Catholic faith is a family. The Catholic Church is a family first. It's, it's an, liturgy is an encounter with Christ. And from that comes the rest. But it's not just empty, hollow forms that you can just replace with anything else. There's a certain logic in the liturgy. It leads towards something, towards someone, I should say. So that means you can't just make it up by yourself. Just as if you want to get to a place or you want to travel to your aunt or or, or, or grandma, you're not just going to make up the road or, you know, well, let's just turn right here just because I feel like it. You're, you're never going to meet that person. So anyway, it's probably not the best analogy, but um, uh, so it, I remember that uh, in, in school we talked a lot about that upcoming visit of Pope Francis, of, of Pope John Paul. And I um, I was surprised at the 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 aggressive nature of, of uh, the criticism. And not, it wasn't just directed towards the Pope, but also towards the Catholic faith. And that was when I first started to realize, well, wait a minute, this faith, that's mine. I'm happy with it, but I don't know anything about it. I can't defend myself. 
I don't know what the Pope says. I just have a gut feeling that, you know, it's it's more nuanced than what the detractors present here. And so that's how I got to study um, documents or letters by Pope John Paul II. And I remember reading just stuff. And back then, there was no internet. I had to find magazines that would post excerpts. It was very hard to find anything translated back then. And I read, but what I found was fascinating and it was so much b- more interesting and coherent than I ever had heard of. It was, the, 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 I think, the time in my life where, I, where my faith grew up and became adult, an adult faith, not, not the childish, you know. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the simple faith that you receive from your parents... Now I had to own it. I had to understand it so that I could defend it and explain it. And that's exactly what I did. And I, I think that's how, in a certain way, John Paul II was the catalyst of my vocation. And there were many more event, more, more uh, stages, of course, in that growth toward priesthood. But that's where it all started. And um, when I m- first met him in the Vatican, in that library, well, the first time I saw him was in his private chapel. Um, and we had to wake up extremely early, like 5.30 or something like that. I was a student back then. I didn't like waking up early. So I was completely groggy and <laughs> completely tired. So we entered that chapel, and John Paul II is already there in the center of the chapel, praying in silence. And... There was something about his presence there that just was so impressive. You felt like this is a saint. I think I remember, well, I'm not sure if I remember, but I I think I felt that this is not just a regular person. This is someone who's extremely close to God. I'd never felt something like that with anyone else, not even my own bishop. And so the Mass itself was, I don't remember much of it. We, We did sing. I was part of the choir of seminarians. But the Pope was kind of tired. It was early in the morning. He wasn't that, you know, communicative during Mass. There was nothing special about Mass, anyway. But then when he met us in the library and he shook our hands, that's where you saw that he was radiating. He he had more energy... He made jokes. He was extremely warm um, and friendly and focused. There was a lot of focus in his eyes. He listened. He looked at you. And uh, I remember I was just starstruck. <laughs> like, I can't believe I'm shaking hands with John Paul II. <laughs> oh, boy. So anyway, 100 years ago. So he would be 100 years old if he hadn't died. And even... Everything I do here in podcasting started with him. Started with his dead a death. Actually, it was on Saint Peter's Square that I recorded my first podcast. Right at the time that he fell ill and later on died. And if that hadn't happened, and I hadn't been traveling to Rome around that time, maybe I wouldn't be sitting here. <laughs> Who knows? And with that, it is time to move to our next segment. I'm just going to press a button and see what happens. Oh, there we go. That's the right jingle. I'm quite keen on comic books. 
especially the ones about superheroes. I find the whole mythology surrounding superheroes fascinating. You ever try these comics? No. You know something? No, what? You read too many comic books. <laughs> I finally found a comic book on Marvel Unlimited that I can't stop reading. For a lot of these comics, and maybe it's because it is just I'm reading them on a tablet, and and so it's it's rather small. I still have an old iPad Air. Um, it's a bit straining, and you know, I have to squint my eyes to read it. And the artwork is sometimes very intricate and very flashy, and so I don't know. Sometimes I just have a hard time reading through those superhero comics. But this one, this is different. I love this comic. It's called uh, Miss Marvel. And it tells the story of a, uh, a girl of uh, Muslim descent, or she actually is a Muslim herself. Um, but she's also a teenager. She's, she's growing up, and she's struggling with her, her you know, tradi- more traditional parents and a brother who is very religious, whereas she is well, a little bit more, I don't know, it's not, not so much into it. And so she... She's uh, struggling with a clash between the traditional world of her parents and then the the youth culture at school. And, well, she's growing up, and uh, she's not very popular, also due to the fact that she's a Muslim, uh, but also because she's a bit awkward and definitely not the the fancy popular girl. And then one, one day... Uh, there's this strange mist that envelops the city and uh, it causes accidents. And that is all of a sudden uh, that she transforms into the woman, the comic book hero that she admired, but it's not really embraced by her parents. And that is uh, uh, Miss Marvel. And so she she turns into uh, into Ms. Marvel, looks the same. All of a sudden, she's got blonde hair and you know just the, the same, almost the same costume. And so everybody thinks it's it's her, uh, it's Carol Danvers, but it's not. And then she she discovers that she has different powers as well. She can turn her fist into the size of a barrel and just smash her enemies, and and she doesn't know how to control it. And it's like, and then she, after a while, she reverts back to her, to her own self, and she doesn't know what's going on. And so there's this constant struggle that she has with these newfound superpowers, and there's no easy explanation. They don't, they don't tell you what, what's going on. She doesn't understand what's going on. And that makes it so endearing, this comic. It is all about her, you know, like, what is happening to me? What do I? What is my? What you know? What I, what do I do? Am I supposed to be a superhero? Am I supposed to walk around here? This is so not you know my background, and yet at the same time I can help. And I it's so well done, and it's it's very realistic in a certain way. The art style is great too. It's very different from a lot of the Marvel stuff. Um, Muted colors, very nice layout, very, uh, there's a lot of room. I, I don't know, it just reads, it flows. I love reading through it. It's almost, I don't, I'm not even realizing that I'm reading a comic. It's, I love the style, I love the story. I love that, the whole concept. 
it's absolutely great. I hope that this will be uh, one of the upcoming Marvel movies. And I'm actually surprised that they didn't uh, pick her earlier on. This is this could be the female counterpart to to Spider Man. There's the same charm of that age where you're like not very sure about yourself. You're still trying to find your way in life and these superpowers are more of a hindrance than a help. And uh, it's it's a coming of age story and a, and a, an origin story at at same time. And it's got some religious elements, which is also rare in the superhero universe. Um, and and it's not just something that is forced in, uh, like they do nowadays a lot with uh, LGBTQ. Uh, characters in series like oh here's the token lgbtq character of the week you know and but it the role really doesn't it doesn't really matter uh it's just something that it's like um virtue signaling almost we also have an lgbtq character in star trek star wars disney movies whatever um but, but but here in this story with faith um they take it seriously. They make it part of the story without ridiculing it, without, you know, uh, uh, stereotyping it. But it shows a struggle of, and, and I think that's a very relatable thing for young people nowadays, is if you've had a religious education and at the same time you have to function in a world that is not religious and that even kind of looks down on those old traditions, where do you stand? Is that really part of of you is it something that you want to hold on to is it something you have to relate to in your own way it's all those interesting questions i've never seen those before in a marvel uh comic book series that is why i like this one so much so uh thumbs up for miss marvel <laughs> Briefly uh, skip ahead and talk about the rumored Apple Glass uh, AR headset. That um, so apparently it's um, it's getting closer. The moment is getting closer that finally Apple will reveal their own take on virtual reality slash augmented reality. And this is, from the looks of it, going to be much more of an augmented reality thing uh, than VR, according to the rumor. Apple is preparing to launch uh, glasses. It's called Apple Glass, just like Google back then with their Google Glass. It wasn't very successful, but Apple Glass, it's just a, a set of, you know, regular glasses with built-in screens. And, and this is very interesting, without a camera. What has always been a major ingredient for all AR technology was a camera. And that was exactly the flaw and the Achilles heel of that technology because a lot of people were not comfortable with the concept of wearing glasses with a built-in camera that would register whatever you saw and and potentially even analyzing it and registering it in the cloud. Can you imagine the privacy problems and issues? Not just other people appearing in your line of sight, but also your own personal life. You go to the toilet and you forget to turn off your glasses. <laughs> no wonder that it failed. 
Well, apparently, according to these rumors, Apple has chosen a different direction. And this could be the first really innovative step or piece of technology that Apple has launched in the past 10 years. I think the Apple Watch was maybe the only thing that gets close, even though a smartwatch was already there. It was, re, you know, iterative technology that just made it a little bit better. But there was, it wasn't really groundbreaking technology. But what Apple does now, at least if this is true, that is groundbreaking. So instead of using a camera, they use a LiDAR sensor, which is a technology that they, uh, that they bought. Uh, they bought the entire company that developed it. And it's like a 3D scan of your field of view. And... Um, but it's not a camera. You can't take it a picture. It's just three-dimensional data. And the, from what I've heard, the LiDAR uh, technology is implemented only in the most recent iPad, I think, the iPad 2020, which, from the looks of it at first, didn't receive any upgrades. So a lot of people are like, well, why? Why did Apple issue this iPad if it's barely different from the 2018 model you'd better just save yourself a couple of hundred bucks and buy that one well the main difference i think was the lidar scanner i may have to uh, verify that um because it could also be that it was in the phone uh but it, it was part of the ipad pro and the ipad pro already had ar programs and technology no it is actually in the ipad pro though it was the only one with the lidar scanner um there are some apps that apple developed or co-developed that use that lidar scanner to place objects very solidly in the 3d environment so you could place something on a table a, a virtual object and then move uh in front of it and it would still look as if the object is behind the person that moves in front of it. Um, and that's all thanks to that very advanced LiDAR scanner. Um, and apparently from, from, from these leaks, that is the technology that Apple is going to use in the AR glasses. And it makes total sense. If Apple knows where you are and knows what you're looking at and can analyze the 3D data, it doesn't need to have a visual picture. Because it can project the information and the added reality or the augmented reality on top of those 3D uh, scans. But you would completely avoid the privacy problems and also the kind of the scary nature of AR technology uh, compared to when it had been developed with a camera, which would be the easy way to go. That's what... Most companies have done so far. But not Apple. Apple's like, we have this technology. Let's use it. And maybe they just bought that entire LiDAR company because that's, they felt that if we don't do this, nobody's going to buy it. But it's, if you can say, if you can guarantee that your AR glasses will recognize where you are, will be able to play with the environment and project things on it, and at the same time it won't be visual information, that is technology that we haven't seen implemented anywhere else. And it could make this feel safe, feel privacy-proof. The 
glass, the, the glasses. We'll, we'll also have uh, prescription glasses that you can order. The thing itself, according to the rumors, going to cost about four ninety nine. It's probably before taxes, so it's going to be still very expensive. Um, but it will be completely dependent on, on an iPhone powering it. So very similar to the first Apple Watch. You need to have an Apple phone, which makes it very interesting for Apple because then they can sell you Apple phones as well. And those are expensive, plus the glasses, plus prescription glasses. You pay even more. So my guess is that the first set is what you should skip. You can drool <laughs> when you see it, but you don't want to have that version. Maybe not even the second version. You want to have the version where the technology is on board inside the glasses and not dependent on the phone. It's like the Apple Watch. You know, would, you, would you buy an Apple Watch that forces you to carry around your phone with you? Of course not. But it took a couple of years for Apple to make that into a standalone device. And even now, it's still not very useful for, let's say, people like me who have an Android phone. Because it doesn't really work. It has just very basic functionality when you combine it with an Android phone. And it's only when you have an Apple phone that it unlocks the, the full potential of the watch. That's why I'm not wearing one. <laughs> Otherwise, I would. <laughs> but uh, anyway, it's going to be very interesting to see what Apple does with this. This, this seems to me like uh, this could be a breakthrough device, and they definitely took their time to develop it. So very, very cool. All right, I had promised you a liturgy segment in, on this show, but I'm going to skip that um, and uh, move it to next week. And then I'll also give you a more, you know, I'll take some more time next week to talk about that uh, Assassin's Creed visitor mode that is so cool. I haven't played around with it, so maybe it's a good thing that I'm skipping it uh, for now. So next week, another episode, because you are my patron. And you are my monthly supporter, and I'm super grateful for that. Hope you enjoyed this. Let me know if this show works for you, if there's anything you can, I can improve, if there's anything else you want me to talk about. I'm open for suggestions. You know where to find me. Just go to patreon.com slash fatheroderick. <laughs>